7.25 million. So when this podcast nice. hits it big, I'll, I'll buy it the next time. Now, it's unbelievable the amount of information that is dispensed on this show, obviously, as evidenced by uh, the amount of information you just shared on Honus Wagner, the collectible market in general. I do want to clear the air on something. I did know that there wasn't gum back there. It was kind okay. of a joke reference okay. to the fact that the gum was always very hard. You never knew how long it had been around <laughs> when you got your normal. So that was where Duly, duly noted. Just suggesting. Now. Welcome to Wait What? Sports Biz Chat with DP and McGee, the podcast where we take a sometimes irreverent, sometimes cynical, often cynical, and even sometimes a serious look at the business of sports. I'm your co-host, Tim McGee. And I'm David Perot. David, episode number 31, Dog Days of August. Quite frankly, my friend, I've already checked out, so this podcast is all yours. <laughs> I'm leaving on a much needed, if not well-deserved vacation as soon as we wrap up recording of this. So, oh, no. So that, That's scary. You did not tell me about the added level of pressure on this. On this I thought you were going to say I didn't tell you about the vacation. <laughs> well, you did tell me about the vacation. We are going to be off next week, which is important. We'll touch base on that towards the end of the show as well uh, to remind people uh, for next week that we will be off after 31 straight weeks. So, so what's on your mind this week? Well, you know, it's turned back into another busy uh, week in the in the sports biz, uh, which just seems to be, you know, the way it always is now, which is great. We always have uh, no shortage of topics to talk about. The first thing I wanted to jump on is uh, what looks like it's just going to be a massive uh, deal for the Big Ten on the TV rights, which everyone suspected it would. Uh, and this honestly was even before USC and UCLA uh, were announced to be joining. But the big part of it is that ESPN is out. Um, it was reported by both uh, Andrew Marchand and John Oran, two of the best in the business on the sports media side uh, beat, um, that uh, ESPN might be out, but it was confirmed today that they are. They, they pulled themselves uh, out of it. Um, uh, and so it looks like CBS and NBC will both be joining Fox uh, Fox already had redone its deal. They have the noon games, noon Eastern time in the United States. Uh, and uh, it looks like CBS will add the 3.30 time slot and NBC will get the prime time slots. Uh, and listen, this thing's going to be over a billion dollars a year. I mean, a billion dollars a year for a conference. And, and that may escalate uh, when those West Coast teams uh, uh, come on in 2024. So just a, a massive package for the Big Ten um, expected. Yeah, big, big news indeed. And, uh, you know, it ramps up, maybe pressure is not the word, uh, certainly is going to ramp up the efforts by NBC uh, to see if they can get Notre Dame into the fold in the Big Ten. Uh, but, you know, NBC is a juggernaut, right? With, NBC, with Notre Dame in the afternoon, Big Ten primetime on Saturday night, and then Sunday night football, which has been number one in its time slot, I believe, literally every week since it started over 10 years ago. Yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a great point. We've talked about the Notre Dame deal in the past as being, as being, you know, surprisingly not as big as you might suspect. And this definitely puts NBC back up there. I mean, NBC has came hard to this thing, it, it appears. 
Uh, and, the, and the packages on both CBS and uh, NBC are expected to be around 350 million uh, a year. So, you know, the Notre Dame thing had been rumored at around they were looking for 75 million. Now, granted, it's one school, not a conference deal, uh, mm-hmm. but we'll see what that comes in at. And yeah, you're right. I mean, this puts NBC smack smack in the middle of of big time college sports. And I think it's kind of a rebound for them in the space because other than Notre Dame, they hadn't been that visible. So right. yeah, this is, this is huge. You know, Fox and, uh, and the other certainly have, uh, have been a, a big player. And, and what makes this really fascinating is this will be the first time in 40 years that ESPN doesn't have a piece of the big 10. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So kudos to Pete Pavacqua, Justin Bychak and the guys at NBC sports. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I'm a collector, right? You know, I that, know I, that. Right. But, uh, one thing I'm, I may have been able now, I'm lying. I couldn't justify either of these things that sold this week. But the famous Honus Wagner T206 card sold, uh, reclaimed the title of the most valuable sports card in the world, sold at auction for $7.25 million. Um, but more interestingly, because no, numerous uh, copies of that card have sold over the years. But never before did the famous Bobby Bonilla contract come up for auction and went for $180,000. The, the original Bobby Bonilla contract. Well, the, the, not the first like contract sign. he signed. No. It's, the, it's the contract. I, yes, the original yes. Of, the, of the Bobby Bonilla. That is correct. Bobby and it Bonilla was contract. Dennis Gilbert, his agent's copy of the uh of the uh, contract, or as I like to call him, the best agent in the history of the world. For those of you who don't know. What an annuity. Uh, yeah, Bobby Bonilla's agent signed a deferred, signed a contract or had his con- client sign a contract in which a large portion of his salary was deferred. And every day on July 1st is unofficially known as Bobby Bonilla Day. Uh, Mr. Bonilla gets $1.2 million per year for 25 years. And it seems like it's been going on forever, but he's only halfway through, right? So he'll be getting that for the next 12 years or so. Um, in total, he'll be getting $29.8 million, uh, $1.2 million every July 1st. And he will get the last payment at the age of 72. And that's in addition to his pension, mind you. He still gets a, a, a the of generous pension from the major league baseball players association as well. So uh, that, that contract, which is famous, not because it's the biggest contract, but it's, um, but it speaks to what agents can do to the, for their players um, was sold. And, and it comes with some uh, experiences. You get, uh, <laughs> you get to go to a baseball game with Bobby. Bonilla. Wait, what, what, did it, what number did it fetch? $180,000. Yeah. So, you know, you think if that includes hot dogs and a beer, it, it's starting to turn into a pretty good bargain. You think the agent's only keeping his standard percentage of that and the rest going to Bobby Bonilla or is Bobby, Bobby okay I, with the fact that he's making that? I, I think, I think uh, Dennis Gilbert's keeping the whole 180K, I, I, less, as, less, as less the seller's premium. As he should. The other question I have for you is on the Honus Wagner card, is the mm-hmm. gum still good? Well, David? Funny you should ask that. It actually did not come in a, with a pack of gum. It came as a promotional item in a pack of cigarettes. Of as many of those early 20th, late 19th century 
sets of cards did. And there's an interesting story that has arisen. They, there, we, we don't know. We do know that Honus Wagner asked that his image be removed from the set of cards, which is why that card is particularly rare and hence valuable, right? And plus the fact that he's one of the greatest players of all time. What we don't know is whether uh, he asked to be removed from the set because he was opposed to smoking. Um, possible, but he not many people were anti-smoking back then. And in fact, he chewed tobacco. Um, the more likely scenario is one in which he wanted to be compensated for his name, image, and likeness. And because he was not, he asked to be removed. Because interesting story, I wrote an academic article about five years ago on the history of celebrity and athlete endorsements. And Honus Wagner was one of the first going back to 1905 when he uh, got a check for a couple hundred bucks to have his name um, burnished into uh, Hillish and Bradsby uh, Louisville slugger bats. So he was no stranger to endorsements by that point, right? Uh, but 7.25 million. So when this podcast hits it big, I'll, I'll buy it the next time. Now, it's unbelievable the amount of information that is dispensed on this show, obviously, as evidenced by uh, the amount of information you just shared on Honus Wagner, the collectible market in general. I do want to clear the air on something. I did know that there wasn't gum back there. It was kind okay. of a joke reference okay. to the fact that the gum was always very hard. You never knew how long it had been around when you got your normal. So that was where <laughs> duly, was duly noted. just suggesting. Now, Vin Scully was around for a long time, but he wasn't around for back in Honus Wagner's time. But, you know, right after we talked about Bill Russell losing him uh, on last week's show, we got word that uh, the great Vin Scully, the longtime announcer for the Dodgers and just a brilliant sports broadcaster, um, passed away. He was an absolute idol of mine. Uh, I grew up wanting to be a sports broadcaster. And I used to actually listen to records of great calls and uh, Vin Scully's, uh, he was on there, uh, his call of Sandy Koufax's perfect game, his final no-hitter, uh, his fourth straight no-hitter with his last one being a, a, a perfect game. Uh, Scully's call of that is, as it often was, was just masterful. And he was the uh, absolute best at knowing when not to talk. Uh, his the great Kirk Gibson home run call. Uh, in the World Series is another uh, great um, point of reference for just that. So, um, so that was a that was a tough loss. But man, the guy lived the guy lived a great life, uh, and he really was a, he really was a absolute gift to the game of baseball and to sports fans uh, all over. If a warm summer night had a voice, it would sound like Finn Scully. No doubt about it. How about that, Kevin Durant? I, I gives an ultimatum. Hell, I do not know what the hell's going on over there. It's the it's the bizarrest thing. They literally, as we all know, were a toe away from, you know, going to a to a finals and I think probably winning one. Uh, and then, man, shit's gone bad since. Yeah, Kevin Durant saying either fire Steve Nash or trade him. And Joe Sy, the Nets owner, came out and said. We will always do what's in the best interest of the organization. Something to that effect, which is not exactly a ringing endorsement of your coach. And, and he also wanted the general manager, Sean Rooks, to be fired. Um, I met Kevin Durant when he was a freshman and won the Naismith Trophy. He seemed like a really nice young man. 
obviously a great player. I don't know if he's the level of player who can or should be demanding this type of control over an organization, considering the only championship he won, he sort of bought, bought his way into, right? Well, but he was, he, he was a two-time MVP, I think, in the, in the finals, was he not, uh, when he was with Golden State? He certainly won. He, he, so it, it wasn't like he wasn't a contributing factor there. No, um, no, he, but he, he joined an organization and joined a team that, was, that, that may well have won without him, right? But he also, um, you know, has not brought the Nets to the promised land. No, I think that, you know, listen, he believes that he is that level of player. He's, he's, he's taking a page from LeBron. Uh, he's dictating his terms. And that's what the best players on, in all sports uh, feel they've gotten that right. I, I'm not necessarily against that. I mean, you know, they're the ones out there putting it on the line. I don't disagree with you in terms of, you know, you can argue whether or not he is that level of player or should any player uh, have the ability to do that. But he seemed to surprisingly or very quickly get fed up with what was going on. I mean, listen, they had, you know, one of the best, um, you know, trio of players assembled there uh, with Kyrie Irving and James Harden. And um, I think all indications that at least in that one season, even though they very rarely seem to play together, um, they all were committed to the to the goal of winning a championship, and it it obviously just you know has has fallen apart. You know, on top of that, uh, the organization has lost um, a lot of executives that have come and gone very quickly. Um, you know, Joe Sy bought the team from Prokhorov, the, the Russian oligarch that owned the organization before. Yeah, is there any um, truth in the rumor that Joe Sy had to leave the money in a park bench in Prospect Park and? Uh, walk away and Prokhorov came and got it. I, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't know anything about that. Yeah, great. Um, I'm, I'm going to Ireland. I'm probably going to get poison <laughs> in my teeth. So, uh, so yeah, a lot of, a lot of strange uh, things happening there and yeah, we'll, you know, we'll see where he's landed or where he ends up landing. I mean, listen, he is a, he is a great player, um, but he may be past his prime too. Onto a lighter note. We have, tease this topic we have talked around this topic let's dig into this topic a topic being pickleball uh i'm going there you're, and i don't you, care i don't you, care you are what going you there not even dedicating the full show to it but maybe setting up for a future dedication of a full show to it i, I, I will I never ever do a full show on pickleball so lifetime right the fitness franchise is saying that they're creating pickleball only facilities right because pickleball for those of you who don't know is the fastest growing sport in america right over the last two years it's been the fastest growing sport in america but you know how many people play pickleball david i, I do I, I looked it up you, i'm sure you did it sounds like you did about 4.5 million people play pickleball right not a small number but here's the thing i'm old enough to remember putting on tight white shorts um, pro cads and heading out to the racquetball courts and racquetball was the fastest growing sport for many years in the late seventies and early eighties. Right. And it, 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 do you know anybody who plays racquetball now? Maybe a couple, but, but, but here's the interesting thing. 3.5 million people still play racquetball. Now I don't know. I don't know the Venn diagram with overlap of the same people uh -huh. who use a VHS and, 
listen to uh, records on a turnstile, yeah, but three point five million versus four point five million. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not buying those racquetball numbers, but I think there's a strong racquetball These, lobby trying to promote numbers that don't exist. Because, I well, I, mean, I, all I think courts that you see now are squash courts that look like that. It's and, actually. I think they like to be referred to as the racquetball mafia, not the. Yeah, I don't know. Did you know that Joe Gibbs was a like nationally ranked racquetball player? At the I time? did not and know that, but it doesn't surprise me. Yeah. Well, now listen, there's more going on with pickleball. I mean, they just announced a part cornhole just announced a partnership with them that they're going to do these uh, like there's going to be these joint. They're going after this um, top golf model, um, uh, having lanes for cornhole and pickleball courts. And, you know, the cornhole thing's trying to go big, legit, too. We might don't, have to don't, do a show. Cornhole, on don't don't do it. Don't well, don't. You're punching down. I'm not. Cornhole's I'm, huge. I, cornhole's I, huge. Well, it's got, do, a, it's got an ESPN deal. I do. I, well, and I think pickleball, and not may, even just I, the Ocho by the, the, well, the Ocho is pretty big on it. Do you see Jay Cutler like uh, showing up in the celebrity tournament they had? Yeah. This week? I actually watched some of it and guy Cutler comes out. I'm going, Oh man, I find cornhole fascinating. Well, but I will say this about, about uh, cornhole, you know, in, in Chicago, we just simply called it bags. We didn't like, you know, go to this weird name that it's now accepted as cornhole. Yeah, but we I do notice that Northeast people, anytime, anytime I like get around some Northeasterners that, that want to play cornhole, I'm like, you guys, you guys don't have it. And part of it is, is that you need to eat a lot of, of very good um, cured meats while you're playing cornhole. And it's a very Midwestern thing. So I, I, I just like regionally think, you know, and I live in the Northeast now, so, but it's, it's, and I'm not even very good, but I feel like I can dominate anytime I'm seeing you know, is there trying to throw throw the cornhole? Is there any difference between what you know, call bags no, it's the same game. and corn? Now, let me ask you, Midwest or Mid Midwest guy, do you play euchre? Uh, you know, I I know of euchre. I just never played it. Oh, I, I, well, I know that's well, I'll have to show here, you next time we get together. People, in person. I know a lot of people love euchre, but go, you know, I want to go back to the to the pickleball thing. You know, you because we kind of joke about it in a way, but and you slammed uh, Drew Brees last week caught me off guard to be quite honest with you um but he's now a pickleball owner and thomas dundon the owner of the carolina hurricanes has gone big into pickleball so it's not like you know you know there there are names getting behind this movement so um i, I suspect that it's going to continue to uh to grow i'm i'm hoping to play a little pickleball on this vacation i'm taking I, I was hoping to give it a try and i could report back have fun report back drew Brees is turning into the uh, Sha shaquille o'neal uh, of endorsers right yeah He's, yeah he'll, he'll, well, well the one thing i'll say about Shaq, and he does endorse everything is he generally tries to take an ownership interest or a board seat when he does and i respect that i respect that yeah great great line one of his kids said are we rich he said you're not rich i'm rich <laughs> you know i I do feel we need to, and this just came out, this news about Serena uh, planning a retirement oh, at yeah. the U.S. Open. Um, some debate as to whether she's the legit GOAT. I think she is. I, I feel like it's been an honor that I've gotten to see her play, including a number of times in person. Um, I think she's a fascinating athlete that has a lot more to be able to give, and it seems like she's going to uh, take those things on uh, in retirement. But she is, as of right now, one short of the overall Grand Slams. Margaret Court has 24 uh, Grand Slams on the women's side. Serena is next at 23. Steffi Graf uh, next at 22. Um, 
I think you could argue that those, you know, those and, and maybe, maybe Navratilova uh, among the best uh, all time. Um, but I, I, I'm giving it to Serena. Yeah, it's, uh, it's been wonderful to see her career, right? And see what she's done on the court and off. Um, if you remember when Jimmy Connors, who's the last time playing at the U.S. Open, he had that great run. Didn't ultimately win, but made it to, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, the semifinals. So it would be nice to see her go out on a high note, yeah, right? It would, be, it would be amazing. And, I hope uh, she's in good health coming into the U.S. Open. Yeah, I mean, obviously, yeah, she yeah. wants to perform well. It might be tough to win it, but you know she wants to perform well, and I'm sure yeah. she'll, she'll age catches effort. up with everybody, yeah. even somebody as phenomenally gifted and physically fit as Serena Williams. But I know you wanted to talk about big news in the sponsorship space. Yeah, right? so we'll do a little bit of a sponsorship corner segment right here. How do we feel about the sponsorship deals? Uh, and it is big. There were only three NFL teams without naming partners on their stadium. One of them was in Cincinnati um, um, with Paul Brown Stadium, and that is going away. They have signed, uh, the Bengals have, Paycor, which is a Cincinnati-based HR software company, uh, to a deal, which will leave only Chicago's Soldier Field for now, uh, and Green Bay's uh, Lambeau uh, as the only two that don't have naming rights. And Lambeau probably will never sell. I think if the Bears, and it sounds like they will move to Arlington Heights, they certainly will sell a naming rights partner to that deal. Uh, one of the things about the Paycor deal is it's an existing sponsor. And for those in, the, in this business know, you always want to bring a new category in if you can um, to maximize the, the dollar value still. Uh, for the Bengals, who, you know, have a good chance to make another Super Bowl run this year. Uh, it's a big deal. will generate uh, a lot of nice revenue for them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Cincinnati obviously had that great run last year. Joe Burrow is recovering from an uh, emergency appendectomy, but hopefully he'll be healed and back uh, behind center shortly. But yeah, uh, they've, had, they've had a great couple of years building that team back up into one of the elites. And listen, you're, you're right. You always want to have new money, right? But when you have somebody who's willing to do a naming rights deal, you can't, right? You got to, you know, burden a hand, right? Yeah, and there's a lot of talk right now about an excess of inventory out there. And it's not just on the state, because the stadium things are the big deals. And this is a, you know, this is a local company. So it makes sense on that front. That's still, you know, one of the main reasons that people uh, want to do these naming rights deals is to really establish themselves with the market that they operate or headquarter from. Uh, but there is a lot, or there are a lot of Jersey deals out there right now. And some mm -hmm. people are starting to think there's um, too much inventory, uh, which could, of course, depress some of the, the valuations and just not enough people looking to spend that kind of money. I, I think, obviously, the, the top ones, as we've talked about on the show, um, across sports in the major markets will um, you know, continue to fetch pretty high numbers. And I think, I think for the most part, they will sell. The question is, is will some people, you know, hold on to, um, hold on to them until they get the number that they want to get, or will they at a certain point start taking the numbers that are offered? Yeah. It'll be interesting to see the correlation between the revenue from the Jersey patch and the team's um, payroll, right? Because payroll sort of, and then the correlation between the payroll and the size of the market, right? Um, and, you know, for those of us who took statistics, even those of us who didn't necessarily pass statistics, uh, you learn that, you know, correlation is not causation. But I would imagine there's going to be a high correlation between those 
teams that get the big deals and the teams that have the big the big markets and the big payrolls. There's a lot of talk right now, too, about attendance. Um, and, and attendance has been a little rough on the Major League Baseball side this year. Um, yeah. And there's uh, been some they- great races and some some great storylines i'll be curious to see on those on those patch deals particularly if the team isn't necessarily competitive uh is market size and presence of big stars uh in those uh yeah you know in those markets like perfect example san diego Diego, right yeah Yeah. took the words right out of my mouth yeah um but you look at the you know the power rankings or whatever major league baseball calls them top four teams dodgers yankees astros mets LA and New York, you know, top two markets. Houston, I think, is top five in terms of size. That's something that hopefully baseball can address. And I think when you broaden the playoffs to include more teams, you are you're treating the symptom, not the cause. So let's take a break, David, and we'll come back with our guest in just a moment. It's time for our guest. We are so excited to welcome Pam Batalis into the sports biz chat. Pam is that unique executive that has seamlessly moved between brand and property sides and back again without missing a beat. She was named a Sports Business Journal Game Changer in 2016 and holds a Distinguished Alumnus Award from the McCormick Department of Sports Management at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. I think Pam is actually the third or fourth guest that we've had on from that program. Importantly, currently, Pam is the Senior Vice President, Sponsorships and Brand Engagement at Wells Fargo. Pam, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, David, Tim. Very excited to be with you. Listen, we are going to start focused primarily on uh, on your role with Wells Fargo right now. And so uh, we just kind of want to start and get a, you know, a sense of, of how you guys view sponsorship. So at the very basic level, what are the major factors involved in sponsorship decisions at Wells Fargo? Yeah, great question. I mean, we, we, we take a very, very, very strategic, robust approach to determining if there's a strategic fit. So everyone always asks at this, how do you know, how do you determine, um, you know, how do you make those sponsorship decisions? And for us, really, it all begins with aligning on the target audience, right? So we need to figure out um, who that particular sponsorship is delivering, who is their audience, and does that align and, and match well with who we are trying to reach at that particular time. And then from there, you know, probably no surprise, but on occasion, we will have geographic priorities that will overlay. Um, We then might look at the caliber, we'll definitely look at the caliber of the marketing assets. Do we need official official designation in that particular type of sponsorship platform? Um, What are those positions that are available? And then at the end of the day, our team really has to sit down and, and look at all the details and determine, is this sponsorship really going to help us meet our strategic marketing brand and business line objectives and that's that isn't that's no small task uh, for for any sponsorship so we really take a very robust approach so pam before i dive more deeply into that um we have a tradition on the show when when one of our guests says it's a great question we like to give credit to the person who actually wrote the question and it always kills me when i have to do this but that was david's question so just wanted to make sure that i went on record with that we all right, shout out, on scores one nothing. All yeah, right. Yeah. Oh, oh, no, he's way ahead, so I needed that point. <laughs> so, That's great. But, That's great. So when, when you talk about audience alignments, ha- alignment, how do, you, how do you look at your B2C initiatives versus your B2B initiatives? And can, they, can 
a particular sponsorship help you reach both those audiences at the same time? Or do you look to sort of keep them separate or it depends? So how do you look at B2B versus B2C? And Tim, that's an equally great question well, right yeah. there. So. Yeah, I think, I think, did I write that one too? Yes, you did, oh, David. You. So. <laughs> okay, so we only do it the first time, Pam, but see, that's why she's such a pro, Tim. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just trying, it's a teamwork here. But at Thank the end of the day, you know, yes, to answer the question, Tim, is, is a, a sponsorship that is designed effectively and efficiently should, in fact, allow you to reach both the B2C and the B2B uh, consumer or target audience, right? It all comes down to how you use the sponsorship. So, you know, for us, you know, for example, given Wells Fargo is among the top five banks in the U.S., right? So we have millions and millions of B2C customers and B2B customers. Uh, so our planning involves ensuring that it effectively serves all of all facets of the company. So we look at, you know, things like the national TV visible signage, that's going to achieve the top funnel brand awareness for us, right? So that kind of informs everybody that we are supporting this passion point of yours. And then as you come down the funnel, we're then going to take things like uh, creating a very custom social media campaign that no other sponsor is doing and provide the fans or the attendees with really unique, cool content that they haven't seen before. Now they're starting to engage with our brand. And then sort of at the bottom of the funnel, our customers, we, we engage with them very, very well through hospitality and VIP experiences that really help our business line leaders interact directly with their customers. So in, in from our perspective, we need to achieve all of those things within any given sponsorship. And that's what we strive to do is, is fill the top of the funnel, but also engage at that one-on-one -on -one level. I want to talk a little more specifically about some of your bigger partnerships that are certainly well-known because they're a part of, part of the news and a part of the sports landscape. Uh, Wells Fargo has had a longstanding commitment with the PGA Tour uh, through the title sponsorship of the Wells Fargo Championship. Um, won by Max Homa this year for the second yes. time, which I think is really cool. He's one of my favorite new golfers or favorite yep. younger golfers, I should say. Talk to us about the importance of that event and about the tournament's charity beneficiaries that I'm sure you're very, very involved with. Yeah, absolutely. Well, gosh, this is uh, something that's near and dear to the Wells Fargo heart. Uh, uh, definitely. I mean, this this past uh, tournament in 2022 in May, the Wells Fargo Championship was our 20th year in the entitlement position um, on this uh, this awesome PGA Tour stop. So so we work hand in hand for many, many years now with our charitable partner, Champions for Education, uh, to ensure that they achieve all of their desired results. But at the same time, we really ensure that the the, the, the entire company is involved in leveraging this four-day event. So we're really trying to ensure the success of the of the of our nonprofit partner and all of the recipients, you know, that will ultimately receive receive those grants. But at the same time, we know it's a great way to differentiate our brand and really get the message out there about the great things that this company does um, and, and really enhance our own storytelling as a brand and do it in a very, very authentic way. 
Um, and, and a couple of probably the biggest examples of those would be this past tournament in May is, uh, you know, Wells Fargo has always had a huge commitment to small business. Uh, well, one great way we, we said, well, the, the Wells Fargo championship is a great way to demonstrate that. And everyone said, well, what do you mean by that? How can we possibly do that? Um, this is a huge golf tournament. Well, to us, we said, hang on a second. Small businesses always need a platform, a platform much bigger than they're able to achieve on their own from a marketing perspective. So we put our heads together with all our small business division, and we chose six small businesses who are Wells Fargo customers. And we literally created the first Wells Fargo Championship small business market. We literally built an infrastructure at the entrance of the golf tournament. So when you came in as a fan, so 20,000 fans a day come through, right? You, they're going right to the merch tent, right? And then they're going right to their hospitality. But this year, they also had the chance to stop into this really cool small business market. So if you can envision six, we picked six small businesses and created for them, we created almost like a, a replica of their store, like a pop-up shop. And we created six of them. Not only did we give them that level of visibility, we gave them the opportunity to stock that shop and sell during those entire four days of the tournament. And it, you know, it, it was just a, an amazing experience for us for the fans, something they're not going to get. They, they don't expect when they go to a big golf tournament. And these six businesses have all, you know, sort of seen amazing, amazing results. And, and they were, you know, one brand, for example, is Birdie Golf, you know, social wear. So the, the, the women's golf apparel company started by a couple of young designers trying to make it. They hadn't cracked into, you know, the Washington, D.C. market yet. Uh, yet and, and this was an opportunity for them to do it. So cool things like that allow us to demonstrate what we do for the community as a big brand, but allow us to do it in a unique way that engages our customers, engages the general public. And also it's almost a do well by doing good, you know, type type approach is, is really giving folks the opportunity to benefit from a platform like a major PGA, you know, tour golf stop. You know, so that's just one example of, of how we've we've used the championship and we've done it, you know, in a number of ways. Uh, obviously, you know, Wells Fargo's always been a proponent of diversity, you know, equity and inclusion. And it's like, well, you know, let's let's show how we demonstrate that. And, and the way that we did that through the championship was taking our national first tee relationship to a whole nother level. Uh, so what we did is we took four, we picked four um, alums of the first tee program who were also either current students or alums of an HBCU program. Those four were selected through a chapter wide, you know, kind of contest and program through the first tee, those four individuals were given the, the, the golf round of a lifetime. They got to play with Rory McIlroy in the Pro-Am. Uh, just again, an experience of a lifetime. So just demonstrating, we really try to do well by doing good. And one of the great things we're doing, let's give folks a way to, to engage with that. And then it allows us to really storytell in a way that can differentiate us from all the other sponsors of major golf stops out there. That's that's very cool. So let's talk about another one of your major sponsorships, one that you actually inherited when when Wells Fargo acquired Wachovia Bank, which is the, the naming rights deal in Philadelphia, the home of the 76ers and the Flyers. How do you take a naming rights deal with a national brand um, on a local property and sort of scale it right uh, locally to nationally and nationally down to locally? 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, again, here's another, you know, sort of uh, crown jewel, if you will, you know, of, of the of the Wells Fargo brand. So with the Wells Fargo uh, Center in Philly, we're literally in our 28th year. Uh, so that, to your point, Tim, you know, kind of gives folks a sense of the, the scope of the relationship. Um, and it's just an amazing venue in a phenomenal market, right? Who doesn't love Philadelphia? So shout out to all your, all your, all your listeners, all your listeners in Philly. Uh, but it's been terrific for us for a number of reasons. And it kind of goes back to what I said before. For in terms of how we strategically choose to use sponsorships and, and, and build them, right? So this is a classic case of who, you know, what brand the size of a Wells Fargo doesn't want the national brand awareness recognition of an arena naming rights deal, right? In a, in a major market, we, we can see the uh, competition that's going on out there, right? I think there, there isn't a, a major venue that's been named in the last 20 years that a financial institution hasn't been either the final one to grab it or, you know, in the running. So we know it's competitive out there. So this is very, very valuable to us, valuable to us for a number of reasons, because we can accomplish that funnel. We can create that national awareness, but then as we start to bring it down and create really unique, engaging opportunities for fans and customers and attendees and tell our story, we're able to do some really cool things. Like for example, this past year um, in the Wells Fargo Center during the Flyers season, um, we were able to kind of really bring it home and do an auto donation uh, for a veteran in Philly through the Military Warriors Support Foundation, you know, for example, and then, you know, kind of building it out a little bit more regionally, we launched something called the Hometown Assist Program. Uh, so that allowed us this past flyer season during the NHL season to award five different businesses $100,000 each in free advertising during the Flyers games to help support them through, you know, and, and, and get them out of and through the impact of the COVID-19 shutdowns. And these specifically were diverse and minority-owned small businesses in the Metro Philly area. So if that gives you a sense of, you know, we, we know we're going to reap the national brand awareness from a naming rights Deal. But again, how we build those other pieces very, very strategically is, I think, really where the rubber hits the road and, and we really try to differentiate our brand that way. Yeah, tremendous examples of logical, smart, locally relevant uh, and uh, community based activation, Pam. Uh, tremendous. We could talk a long time about Wells Fargo and get more <laughs> local because we know you have a lot of other partnerships. We want to take advantage of our time with you and learn a little more. Uh, you, starting at a very young age, uh, have been a pioneering force behind three industry firsts, uh, starting uh, back at Reebok, I believe. Can yes. you take us through a little and kind of highlight uh, each of those? Because this is a really interesting part of your story. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. Great question. Is that David as well? <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I appreciate that. I think I think for me, um, it's really how I got my my start in sport. And I know you guys ask everybody that um, at some point. I think, but um, you know, for for me, uh, my my career began at Reebok. I was fortunate to land at a at a big sports brand. It's the the aspect of our industry that I wanted to land in, and that came off of um, quick quick plug uh, graduating from the the uh, the UMass Sport Management Program. Program, uh, the, the grad program. And uh, then I landed at Reebok. And um, while 
there, it kind of started out, you know, at the very beginning, as we like to call it, I was, I was doing the bag drag. So I literally driving, I think I buried my first car, 50,000 miles, a Sentra or 40 XP or something back in the day, right? So I'm driving up and down the coast of the, the Northeast, buried my first car, but I wouldn't, couldn't have been happier. I had an entire car of just bags of left size nines, the men's samples, and left size women's, the, you know, left size sevens, the women's samples. And I just love that smell of rubber driving up and down 95. And I was calling on all the small accounts at the time. And I think, you know, as I really got my feet under me, it was my first opportunity in the industry, I saw an opportunity. So coming off of my undergrad basketball career um, at, at St. Michael's College, I had spent my entire career sloshing around in men's size sevens. Um, so as a female athlete, there were no performance basketball shoes built for us. Um, the, the definition of a women's performance basketball shoe back in the 80s uh, was, um, you know, at the bottom of the rack in Foot Locker. So you look at the wall, you go all the way down to the bottom, and it was a hard, crunchy, white three-quarter cut with a beautiful pink stripe, because that's what every female athlete wants. Um, and it was only at a $39.99 price point. Gosh, how affordable for us <laughs> girls, because goodness knows we're not going to spend on our footwear. So when the industry was going through, as we like to call it at Reebok, we termed it the Think It pink it, stink it um, <laughs> approach to making uh, women's performance uh, uh, gear, um, the light bulb went on for me. So I spent the next six months working with my leadership at Reebok, built the business plan, and ultimately uh, was able to, you know, kind of lead, lead the charge to launch the industry's first women's team sales division. But in addition to that, more importantly, the first performance basketball shoe built on a woman's last. Um, and we were first to market, very proud of that. And a quick, quick side story off of that is I was given one skew uh, because they didn't think it was going to work. Uh, but then that was me. So uh, they gave me one skew. They said, Pam, pick it really quick. What color? Come on, come on, come on. I said, I'd like white with navy blue logo, please. Uh, because I had gone through the college uh, directory and saw the majority of schools were navy blue. But I also had one school in mind, if you can see where I'm going to go with this. Uh, got the sample that, that day. I'll never forget it. Jumped in my little car, 180,000 miles on the odometer at this point, blast up to this little town called Stores, Connecticut, up in uh, eastern, eastern Connecticut, when you could walk in to a UConn women's basketball practice because nobody was there. Uh, we are talking a long time ago. Um, and uh, before you know it, Reebok signs. UConn women's basketball program to an exclusive uh, uh, sponsorship deal. And Reebok, that's, I mean, uh, and uh, UConn, that's the first time they went 34-0 back in uh, back in 1994, and they did that in the Reebok shoe. Um, so kind of a lot of firsts within there, but just a really, really cool example of, you know, uh, when the light bulb goes on, take advantage of it. Wow. Uh, tremendous, tremendous story there getting, getting into that program. But, you know, Tim's a big collector guy. We, we talked oh, earlier on the show he? about I the Honus Wagner card that just won. Yeah. yeah. Can you quickly just kind of take us through the, uh, uh, your time at the pit.com and, and tops and the developing that? Yeah. 
platform. Yeah, ab- absolutely. That was really cool. Uh, just in terms of, a, again, a, a rather unique opportunity. So, you know, from after launching Reebok, you know, uh, I, I then went into um, launching the American Basketball League. And after the demise of the league, I, I was looking around at what to do. And that was only back in the year 2000 or so. And e-commerce was just hitting, you know, the the the, the mainstream. And I think it, it took until the year 2000 for us to actually to be able to buy something on the internet. And, and kids today don't, don't know a world that, that isn't e-commerce, but this was right on the cusp of e-commerce. Um, and I said, you know what? I've done a lot of bricks. It's time for me to get a click. Um, and back in the day, you know, you needed experience on both sides of the table and I hadn't done anything in the, in, uh, the internet world yet. Um, and there was a startup launching um, and the guys weren't too, too well known who were launching it, uh, but they were sport trading card fanatics and they were risk uh, kind of risk assessors and risk manager type guys from the financial services industry. Um, one of those names you might know is a gentleman by the name of Mark Lore. Um, and a lot of people know Mark Lore uh, as the uh, three or four time very, very successful uh, entrepreneur uh, who ended up leading uh, Walmart.com for Walmart uh, very successfully, you know, has had a couple of major, major um, successful entrepreneurial ventures. Well, I was with him on this, his very first startup, um, leading his sales and marketing. And what we literally created was the industry's first. We took the notion of the sport trading card and the graded sport trading card and literally digitized that. So now, just like you could uh, go on to an online stock market like E-Trade or anything like that back in the day, and today you can go online and buy and sell stocks, we literally graded these cards and put them up in a stock market type environment. So you could buy and sell Michael Jordan's rookie card. You could buy it, put it in your account, wait for him to go into the hall, and then sell it. So literally, we we, we made a, a futures market, if you will, a stock market out of graded sport trading cards. And we built that in literally from the three of us sitting around a table with a phone and a business plan to selling it to tops in 11 months. Uh, so it's sort of one of those amazing, amazing startup experiences that, uh, you know, I wouldn't, wouldn't trade that experience for the world, especially uh, being able to, to, to learn from the, uh, the now great uh, and very well-known Mark Lore. That's, that's great. You've had such tremendous success, right, across a number of different types of companies. The term that we hear all the time now is DE&I, right? Diversity, equity, inclusion. As a woman in the sports industry, have you seen a lot of change in opportunities for young women coming up? Um, And what more can we be doing as an industry to be helping young women and to empower them and give them opportunities that in the past may not have been available certainly not as available as they were to their male counterparts. Yeah. Well, I think I think first of all, you know, yes, I've seen great progress Thankfully, um, you know, I was I, I started in this industry, you know, a, a long time ago, um, and it was very, very challenging. Uh, you know, for example, when I started at Reebok, I think there were only three or four women in the entire 300-person footwear sales force, and then very, very quickly, I became the only woman in the Northeast, uh, you know, to stay out there, quote, doing the bag drag. Um, so it's very, very it was very, very challenging to you know to break in and and to be taken seriously. Seriously. So, you know, you hate to repeat all the cliches, but yes, you know, I had to do things kind of like, you know, Arthur Murray, you know, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. She had to do the exact same thing, but backwards and in three inch heels. Um, yeah. So it, it's, it's, it was definitely like that. Um, but again, I, you know, I don't 
think that was anyone's, you know, conscious intent. Society was was different, and and society has evolved really, really well. So I see a lot more opportunity uh, for young women coming up, and their gender isn't isn't uh, uh, an outright obstacle right out of the gate. It isn't assumed they're not going to understand sports, um, and, and that was a pretty common assumption back in the day. So I see a lot of great progress, but things like um, professional organizations embracing, you know, the the young uh, the young women, young female executives coming up into the industry. Something as simple as SBJ um, initiating the Game Changer Award. I think I was in one of the first few classes of that. Well, that wasn't all that long ago, gang. You know, so I mean, the opportunity to give women a platform to demonstrate what they're capable of um, ha hasn't been around all that long. I would argue uh, personally. Um, and it's taken, you know, quite a bit to get here. I think we've made a lot of progress, but there will there will always be a long way to go, right? You know, equity is, is one of those things that's a, a constant constant progress. We want to follow up a little bit on that. You mentioned that you played at St. Michael's. You didn't say how much of a standout player you were. You are a member of the school's Hall of Fame. Congratulations yes. on that. Thank you. Um, but we, we wanted to touch on thinking about your time as a player and a young athlete. Um, and we've celebrated the 50th anniversary recently of, of Title IX. We did a, we did a show uh, specifically dedicated to that. We were hoping you might share some personal thoughts on the legacy of, of that landmark legislation, uh, including anything that you still think that you'd like to see in terms of equity when it comes to participation uh, for athletes, for executives, really anything. Yeah, great. Thank you. Um, well, I think, you know, when it comes to Title IX, for, for someone like me, so I was in, you know, uh, in, in, in college in the, in the late 80s, so I was about 10, 10 years, you know, removed uh, from, from the actual Title IX passing. So for me personally, it was extremely life-altering, had a life-altering impact on me. And, and when you think back, what, you know, right before it was passed, I think I read something um, in 1971, before it was passed, only 1% of college athletic budgets went to the women's sport teams, right? And high school participation was crazy. It was like 13 to one boys to girls. So we've come a very long way. Um, and, and I think it's, it's especially now, you know, it's really important that society and, and, you know, everyone involved in sports really keeps a, a close eye on it. Because for me personally, you know, the ability to grow up playing competitive sports really validated me. It empowered me. Um, it allowed me to become a very strong yet empathic leader that I've really Really worked hard to, to try to become. And I think without, without Title IX, I never would have had the basketball scholarship to St. Michael's. I never would have had the opportunity to get the caliber of education there that I did. Just a phenomenal place. So I really feel like, you know, I, I attribute Title IX to a lot of that, you know, because a lot of those things, when you think about the domino effects in your life, especially around your education and how critical that is to your future success, that without Title IX, I, you know, I'm sure I would have gone to college, but you know, I don't, I don't know what that would have looked like. And I don't know if I would have been as validated and as empowered if it wasn't for the ability to play in competitive sports at the highest level. Um, thank you for, for sharing that quick trivia question, Tim. Uh, we both know a somebody that Brian Duffy. Okay. He, 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 I didn't hear the buzzer. So, but I'll, I'll, I'll accept the answer anyways. Here's the difference. Brian Duffy's not in the Hall of Fame. I, I checked it. 
<laughs> I love Brian Duffy. We all we all love Duff. No, no, that's yeah. the only reason we would have brought it up. Well, I think I think I think we can use this bully pulpit to try to get him elected into the St. Michael's Basketball <laughs> Hall of Fame. Well, Pam may have another thing talk to, about, to say talk about Talk about that. doing well by doing good, right? We'll be doing after Duff. <laughs> good so, answer. <laughs> we got we actually have to introduce a buzzer into this uh into this program i think i think you should or something yeah. like a like a like a but uh, like a buzzer round questions yeah. or something okay. like bonus round yeah david would like to put in a mute button for me that's what he'd like to do <laughs> um so pam before you joined wells fargo um you spent time in the collegiate marketing space right which is yes. not surprising given your success as a student athlete but you were you were with learfield any thoughts as somebody who's got a little bit of perspective of time and distance on what's going on in terms of the conference realignment. Yeah, I, gosh, it's a, it's a, it's a ever changing world out there. Right. Uh, I think, man, I, I landed in uh, college multimedia rights back in 2010. So about 12 years ago, spent a solid eight, eight, nine years in that space. And honestly, the industry was having the same conversations back then. Uh, you know, teams were, teams were going independent that, you know, shifting conferences, et cetera. So I think, you know, it was definitely the same conversation. I think maybe we're just seeing it now to more magnitude, you know, in terms of some of the bigger schools are, are starting starting to shift and such. And, you know, you have to believe that they're making those decisions for, you know, the, the right reasons and be it financial reasons or to take advantage of the bigger, you know, uh, um, you know, media revenues uh, that, that are that take place in one conference versus another. And um, there's, you know, it's hard to believe that they would make a change like that if it wasn't for a positive financial, you know, outcome for the ultimate betterment of the program. Right. I mean, given, you know, these college programs are nonprofits. So, you know, that that reinvestment into the arms race, as they say, but that reinvestment into uh, their facilities and the training facilities and all the services provided to student athletes, be it academic advising or what have you, um, is the, the competition around those things just kind of keeps keeps elevating. So, you know, I really think we're going to continue to see shifts. It, it, it doesn't surprise me uh, because I feel like it's been it's been happening solidly now for 10, 15 years yeah i I, th I actually think you're right i think it's the fact that it is it's such big news and the geographic you know reach of these big conferences has stretched so far that that's really kind of you know people still want to believe that the big 10 is a midwest contract a conference i wanted well, to believe that the acc was a mid-atlantic conference yeah exa exactly because it's like you know they say realignment but what 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 does that mean because is there any conference that's truly regional anymore you know it's, it's true it, it you know the, the the realignments and the shifts are are even stretching the geographic boundaries which when you think way back you know the region those the reason those were set up is for economics and travel and, and, you know, kind of everything to, to make it, you know, to make it, to make it more affordable. And now it's, you've got some, you know, independents flying all over the country, you know, for their games. So it's interesting. It's the wild, wild west out there now. So before we let you go, we generally, we always like to ask our guests these questions, as you mentioned before, we are going to let you skip the first one because you already <laughs> touched on it so nicely uh, talking about your days with Reebok, but we are, we are expecting uh, some, very valuable information on the second question, okay. uh, which we will ask, which is one piece of advice that you would give to somebody looking to break into the sports business. I think if you're looking to break into the sports business, um, 
make sure you're 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 very like what what is your definition of break in right so my definition of what it took to break in versus um you know a young a young alum today a young grad today might be very different but i think the the biggest i think the biggest advice would be when you're in school use your internships very very strategically think about where you want to you know you know what aspect of the sport industry do you want to gain exposure in first and understanding you know it's not a linear career track it, it can be what you want it to be uh, so really using those internships everyone's doing internships in undergrad or grad but really thinking about those and and really trying to use those very very strategically i think is key because now you've got a little bit more on your resume than you you graduated from a sport management program you know or something which today honestly you look across the executive ranks in sport and and that, that's table stakes. You know, as you as you said on the outset, the number of graduate and undergraduate alums of the UMass, the McCormick, you know, uh, sport management program at UMass is amazing. Um, and it really opens the door for them to the incredibly successful alumni network. And, and that, I think, is, is critical to think about as well. You know, if you are going to try to break in through an advanced degree or a degree, really think about where you go and are there alums in that aspect of the industry who came out of that program. That way you kind of have a built-in networking networking stream. Pam, can't thank you enough for jumping on with us uh, for this uh, for this episode. Uh, great background on what you're doing at Wells Fargo and some of the very innovative activations that you're bringing, but also your perspective over the career uh, as an executive in this business. So we appreciate you and all that you've done in this industry and obviously for jumping on for a few minutes with us today. Thank you guys very, very much. Greatly appreciate it. Love, love the show. Big fans. So thank you. I'm honored to be part of it. Oh, thank you. And thank you for your time, Pam. It was, it was wonderful. Well, Tim, what a treat that was. Uh, Pam Batalis, she's a star. She's proven that over and over. Really feel great that we were able to get her on the show. So we are at that part of this episode where we take a peek ahead. Tim, what do you have your eye on? So before I give a shout out, I just want to say for those of you who are sort of new to the sponsorship business, if you want, if you want to figure out how to write a sponsorship strategy and an activation plan, listen to that first part of the interview with Pam. Um, I've never heard anybody uh, so succinctly um, and clearly articulate how they develop a sponsorship strategy. And clearly there's a lot more work that goes into it, but um, it was a masterclass. Um, it was awesome. So I'd like to give a shout out to our one of our past guests, uh, Kelly Flato from the uh, NBA. Kelly was recently named by Crane's New York business as one of the 30 notable women in sports. So uh, you've known Kelly a long time. We certainly saw fit um, to have her on the show long before Crane's recognized her. So we're going to take a little bit of credit for that. But seriously, it's, it's fantastic to see such a, a great person get such uh, well-deserved accolades in the sports press. Yeah, Kelly is one of my favorite people in the world. You have said that. Literally, and uh, certainly one of the greatest people I've ever uh, had the fortune to be able to work side by side with. Um, and uh, she's doing great things at the league and has done great things every step of her, uh, every step of her career. Yeah. And as far as looking, uh, looking out over the next week or two, uh, as we mentioned at the beginning of the show, I'm 
Uh, I'm heading out with my family right after we uh, we hit end on record to uh, Ireland for a, a long delayed, uh, much needed, if not well-deserved vacation. Um, so hopefully I'm going to check out some uh, some Gaelic football and some nice. curling. Um, as, a, as a young kid growing up playing lacrosse, my father once said to one of my coaches uh, in wide wonder, I can't believe you put a stick in the hands of an Irishman. <laughs> so hopefully we'll get to see a bunch of Irishmen with sticks if we get to see some curling while we're over there. How about yourself? Well, you good. I am to? confident that Ireland is one of the now 25 countries that we've been listened to in. So uh, uh, maybe report back on on some business fronts there, although you're on vacation. So I shouldn't. I, should I may have to travel that. incognito if we have a lot of, well, a lot of listeners. Interestingly, over there. <laughs> there, there, are, there are a couple of Big things happening, big events that I'm, I'm actually looking forward to. The Field of Dreams game from Dyersville, Iowa uh, mm -hmm. is going to be uh, played uh, this week. Uh, and it features my team, the Cubs, uh, will be uh, uh, playing against the Reds, two of the very, very old franchises in Major League mm -hmm. Baseball. Uh, game will be on Fox. Um, Geico returns as the presenting sponsor. Um, it was This event was the 2021 winner of Best Event for the Sports Business Awards. Give a quick shout out to Michael Newman and his team at Scout uh, for their activation work uh, uh, with Geico on this. The MLS All-Star Game is being played at uh, Allianz Stadium in Minneapolis this weekend, where the MLS All-Stars will uh, welcome the All-Stars of Liga MX. And then the FedEx Cup playoffs start this weekend, and we'll see if uh, uh, these couple players from the Live Tour that are suing the PGA, that hearing uh, will probably have some answers on that. Uh, if not later today, uh, over the next 24 hours on whether uh, their appeal will have been uh, heard and granted. Uh, so because they're trying to get into the FedEx playoffs uh, after going to live because there's a lot of money on the line. Uh, so that kicks off from Memphis at the St. Jude Classic this week. So a lot of cool sports events going on this week. Um, listen, I, I feel like we just started the show and it's and it's already time to wrap it up. Uh, a lot of great yeah. things to talk about and a big thank you to Pam Batalis of Wells Fargo. Uh, for sharing insights from uh, her tremendous career. Uh, thank you especially to all of you for taking time to listen to this podcast and engaging with us on social media. As we've said before, if you like what you hear, please share with others that might enjoy it as well. And be sure to follow us and even offer a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, as we mentioned earlier, we will be off next week. It's Tim and I are both taking short vacations, but we will be back on August 23rd. So until then, I'm DP, he's McGee, and we'll talk soon.